Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. You are my people. <laughs> Good morning. Thanks, babe. That was sweet. We were, we were laughing this, this week because I met Justin when I was 15. And now I'm, am I 37? I'm 37. So I was like, babe, you've kind of had like 47 wives. Because when you look at who I was when we first got married, and then who I was a couple years later, and then like who I was yesterday, <laughs> and he's like, babe, I'm going to have 47 more because we're just going to keep growing. And, you know, we're going from glory to glory to glory, and we just got to keep giving ourselves permission to fail and move forward and fail and move forward and that we would keep looking radically different than we did yesterday. And that is true success. And we can't be successful and go to a new place of transformation without getting messy and failing. Because if you're not failing, you're already an expert at what you're doing. Anybody trying to do something they've never done before? This, this is why in the School of Ministry, you can't graduate until you've come to us with a list of failures, right? Any ministry school students out there? Which, by the way, we are having a phenomenal year at Bethel Anna School of Supernatural Ministry. Wow! And you know what? The Bethel Atlanta family, everything that takes place in that school is your reward. Because you're the ones day in and day out that are creating a culture of presence, a culture of heaven on earth where students can move from different places or from Atlanta and come and experience what God is doing here. But without a family creating the culture it would be an entirely different experience. And uh, is Daly here? Is Daly here this morning? Daly? Oh, Daly, you should wave. I'm going to tell your story. Okay? So Daly, she, um, we were having testimony time a couple weeks ago, and she works in Atlanta. Just correct me if I get any of this wrong, okay? Uh, and she, she was walking the streets of Atlanta, and a homeless guy started calling out to her, and she was passing him and then felt the Holy Spirit. You know that thing you feel inside of you that's like turn around and go back? So she listened. It's a good day when we listen. <laughs> it's a good day when we hear it. And we listen, right? And so she turned around and, and Starbucks was just right over there. So she said, what, what can I get you from Starbucks? From Starbucks? And he said, um, a small black coffee and a donut. Super specific. So she went into Starbucks and ordered a small black coffee and a donut. And there were no donuts left. And so she decided just to get a plain bagel. 
And so she ordered him a plain bagel and they call out her order and she grabs the bag and inside the bag was a dough nut. A donut! <laughs> and all of our hearts melted in a puddle that the king of glory, the God of heaven and earth, cared about a donut order. It's like water into wine, but a bagel into a donut. Like, what? What in the world? That's our king. That's our king. We should talk to him. So Jesus, we are in awe of everything you are, of everything you do. And we, we woke up this morning to be astonished. We woke up with one goal, to be overwhelmed by the beauty of you. You are astonishing. You are beauty. And we echo what David prayed thousands of years ago. There's one thing we ask. There's one thing we desire. To behold your beauty. To live inside of your presence. And, you know, we, I, I guess I just speak for all of us, have been thinking about what Michael Bain said, ask for the moon. That, that you are charging us as a community to ask for the moon. And every time I, I think about it, because I'm an introvert, so thinking is my favorite hobby. I can't help but just having this one thing erupt in my heart. I want the one who hung the moon. We want the one who hung the moon. We want you like Jesus modeled having you when he walked the earth that you give your presence without measure. And, and we want to manifest your presence on the earth like Jesus manifested your presence on the earth. That he unashamedly and wildly and astonishingly manifested the nature of heaven, the nature of the Father. And Jesus, when we walk in the room, we want it to be like you walking in the room. That when, when a sick woman touched just even the hem of your garment, her entire body responded to presence. That when a little girl was dead on a bed, you walked into the room and she instantly stood at attention. That sickness could not breathe in your presence. That every demonic spirit trembled when you were near. 
Jesus, when we walk into our city, we want it to be with the same measure of heaven as when you walk into our city. You are our highest desire. You are the dream that surpasses every other dream. You are what every aching nation is longing for. And we've come, we've come this morning to celebrate that you are desire satisfied. So you just always and forever get the highest place. You get the highest seat in this family. We love you, Jesus. We love you with our whole life. We love you, we love you, we love you, we love you. With every breath we breathe in this lifetime and into eternity, we love you, we love you, we love you. We love you. Amen. Well, uh, if you've been in this culture for any amount of time, you've heard Bill Johnson talk about arise and shine for your light has come. Anybody heard that? It is in our blood by inheritance because it is a, a, a cornerstone in our movement. And I uh, moved to Bethel Reading when I was 19 and have received by inheritance things that would have taken me two decades to get on my own. Who's excited about inheritance? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we have heard over and over again, arise and shine for your light has come and nations are going to come to the brightness of your rising. Kings are actually going to be blinded by your light. And, you know, Bill will often redirect us to King Solomon to see a beautiful picture of literal queens and kings coming to see the way that Solomon arose and shined bright in his hour of history. And for the last several weeks, my heart has just been standing still as I've just been reading over the story of Solomon. And it's a sobering story. It's a beautiful story. And, you know, it causes my gratitude for the Bible. Anybody just get thankful for the Bible? Like every single day. It's, the Bible is the most generous earthly gift we will ever receive. There is nothing more generous than what we find in the Bible. Because we, we get to step up to a table of absolute heroes who chose to to use their authority and influence to tell the entire story, no matter how it made them look. And true honor is not covering up the failures in our stories. Or, the, or you know, true honor 
is celebrating a humility that is unashamed to let the people in our life receive from the whole of who we are. That, that's why we boast in our weakness because it's true generosity when I let you learn from where I got it wrong. And you know, the Bible is the most generous story of all time <laughs> because there are these heroes that absolutely laid down their lives for what we're walking in today. And they tell the whole story. I mean, you, you blush for them sometimes, you know? <laughs> like, how did you do that? There's hope for us all, you know? <laughs> so Solomon, you know, he is literally living in life and life more abundant. And when you go back and you just look through what he accomplished with what David set him up with, it is astounding. I mean, there, there was excess everywhere. There was so much excess that silver lost its worth. It was just as plentiful as rocks, as stones. And all of his cups were made out of gold and his spoons were made out of gold. And there, there, there was an abundance of everything necessary and unnecessary everywhere you looked in his kingdom. And when the, king, when the queen of Sheba came, she said, I had to hear for myself if what everyone was saying was true because his reputation as being the wisest man and the wealthiest man alive on planet earth was so extravagant. And when the queen of Sheba came, she said, I had to come for myself to see if what people were saying was really true. And they didn't say the half of it. Whoa. And you know, my heart stands still that one of, one of our core values through inheritance is that we would always be bigger on the inside than we are on the outside. And I mean, we should tremble at the thought of looking bigger and, and brighter and wiser than we really are. Does that stress anybody else out? <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's why I try to tell the whole story. Just tell the whole story because this is going to go really bad if you come check it out and you're like, well, that was lame, you know? <laughs> You're just a guy with a castle, you know? But she, her heart was undone. And she said, I didn't hear the half of who you are. And, you know, her assessment was, your God loves Israel. Wow. He, ha he had risen to a place of influence. And she's, he, she's saying, your people get to hear this wisdom day in and day out. Surely your God loves his people. And the assessment of the queen, because of the extraordinary wisdom and favor Solomon was walking in, was God loves your people. And what would it be like? I have people like this in my life a lot of people like this in my life, where I look at the beauty of who they are and I think, God loves me. God loves me. That he would write you into my story. And how, how, how far can we take it if Atlanta 
looks at you arising and shining and their thought is, God loves me, that he put you in my city, that I would get to benefit from the favor and the wisdom and the wealth God has put on you. And when we shy away from favor, we're shying away from loving everyone in our sphere of influence that God wants to send a message. I love you. I love you. I love you. That you, you are a message that there is a God and he is good and he is on your side. And it's just profound when you look back at her assessment God loves Israel, that he has blessed them with you. And, you know, when we look at the end of Solomon's life, he just massively fails. And he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So if you put it all together, that is a thousand wives. And it's hard to wrap, wrap your head around, you know, and, and, like, and he loved them, the Bible said. And, you know, Song of Solomon, it is famous for the love affair that was happening. That is one of the most beloved books in the entire Bible. So, you know, I think it's safe to conclude that this wasn't just a sexual passion, because there's like 365 days in a year. And even if you times that by two, there's no way he was just trying to meet a sexual need. It's impossible. And the Bible actually says he loved them. He loved them. And, you know... The the Bible, the word of God tells this whole story. And the Lord specifically commanded his people not to marry from other nations. Because if you do, they will turn your heart to other gods. And the Bible says Solomon loved them anyway. And at the end of his life, his his foreign wives turned his heart to worship other gods. And it says he did not trust in the Lord alone like his father David did. And he, he ends up actually setting up an altar to two gods. And one of them was so devastating. They, they would sacrifice children to this God. Like, it it wasn't just a minor detour. It was like a a sharp left turn and jump off a cliff type of detour. And, you know, it it just causes your heart to stand still, seeing a man who was set in absolute abundance, that there was nothing lacking in the favor on his life. And yet, he at the end of his life gives us a glimpse into there was some type of poverty in his heart on the inside of him that was unrelenting that 
If 50 wives wasn't enough, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, you know, and that, you know, we can't assume we know what the root of that poverty is, but we can assume that, that he could not fill up on the inside. And, you know, our, our worship is directly connected to our trust. It, it, it says in the Bible, he turned to other gods in worship and did not trust the Lord alone. And, you know, nothing on the outside of your life can fill up what is needed on the inside. And, you know, we flash forward to Jesus being the answer to every Old Testament deficit, right? Bill Johnson says, Jesus is perfect theology. And any Old Testament question we have is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So as I've just been soberly meditating, I couldn't help but just think about the woman at the well. And, you know, she had six husbands. And, you know, it's like this feeling of you're going to be fine. You know, <laughs> you, got, you got six, we can work this out. That's fine. We just came from a thousand, you know. And, and I want to look at her story this morning if you want to turn to John 4. And verse 1. It says, soon the news reached the Jewish religious leaders known as the Pharisees that Jesus was drawing greater crowds of followers coming to be baptized than John. Although Jesus didn't baptize but had his disciples baptize the people. Jesus heard what was being said and abruptly left Judea and returned to the province of Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaritan territory. Jesus arrived at the Samaritan village near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph long ago. Wearied by his long journey, he sat on the edge of Jacob's well. He sent his disciples into the village to buy food, for it was already afternoon. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink of water. Surprised, she said, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? And Jesus replied, if you only knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give you, you'd ask me for a drink and I would give to you living water. The woman replied, but sir, you don't have a bucket and this well is very deep. So where do you find this living water? Do you really think that you are greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank from it himself along with his children and livestock? Jesus answered, if you drink from Jacob's well, you'll be thirsty again and again. But if anyone drinks the living water I give them, they will never thirst again and will be forever satisfied. For when you drink the water I give you, it becomes a gushing fountain of the Holy Spirit, springing up and flooding you with endless life. The woman replied, let me drink this water so I'll never be thirsty again and won't have to come back here to draw water. Jesus said, go get your husband and bring him back here. 
but I'm not married, the woman answered. That's true, Jesus said, for you've been married five times, and now you're living with a man who is not your husband. You have told the truth. So we'll just pause there for a second. And, you know, the greatest mark of the Christian life is not thirst. And sometimes... Uh, it is a good thing that we never cross over into complacency. But the greatest mark of a Christian life is quenched thirst. That we aren't going from thirst to thirst in the kingdom. We're going from satisfaction to satisfaction. We're going from glory to glory. We're going from fullness to fullness. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, he came offering what, what we desperately needed on the inside. Ra Rachel was pointing to it this morning in her opening, that the solution for humankind was to put the fountain of living water alive on our insides, that every deficit wired within our DNA, wired within our culture, wired within the family of origin that we grew up in for generations, the answer would be a spring, a fountain of living water coming and filling up space on our insides. And if we don't start full in the kingdom, we will never find fullness. If we live on the earth, thirsty, looking for water, there will never be enough. He, Jesus said, if you drink from Jacob's well, you'll have to keep coming back again and again and again. It will never be enough. But if you drink from me, you will live not just full, but overflowing. You will live inside a gushing, mighty, strong river. Like the water level is rising up over our heads to never go without. And, you know, so another way to say thirsty is to say deficit. I've said deficit a lot to my friends in the last six months. <laughs> Has anybody ever bumped into a deficit in your soul? Like, I'm dehydrated. I've gotten weird because I'm so dehydrated. You know, dehydrated people start to live in illusions in the natural, you know? And the greatest way to live rooted in reality is to live full. And when you bump into a deficit in your soul where, gosh, I'm thirsty for love. Has anybody ever felt thirsty for love? And you, you try to first get that deficit filled from the earth looking to heaven. It will never be enough. You could literally have a th the love of a thousand wives and it not be enough. When you start to feel a poverty in your soul, you start, you start to feel lack. You could literally have nations. It, it's said of, of Solomon that every nation came to see him, came to bring him gifts. And you could still have a poverty in your soul 
if we don't enter into the fullness of what Jesus purchased. And Jesus purchased that we would never live from our thirst on the earth towards heaven. He came to give us access to exist in heaven, in the abundance of heaven, in the absolute delight of heaven, in the fullness of heaven, where there's, nobody even knows the word lack in heaven. No, nobody ever worries one second in heaven that there is never a question of significance anywhere in heaven. And when you start to feel an anxiety over your, over your significance, gosh, am I just filling up space here on planet earth? I, I'm fine if I'm preaching to myself this morning, but I felt all those deficits. I've had blood, sweat, and tears over those deficits. And nothing you can arrange on the earth can ever satisfy the ache the thirst that Jesus came to fulfill. And if we don't start full, we'll never get to fullness. Nothing on the earth can make you full. We live from the fullness of the Holy Spirit towards every deficit on planet earth. We get excited we are the people that get excited when we bump into deficits on planet earth because we're more aware of the resource of heaven than we are of the deficit on the earth. And whenever we start to become more aware of our deficits on the earth than we are of the place that we live, breathe, move, and have our being, we, we start to live dehydrated and disillusioned. And when we start to live disillusioned on the earth, we, we have lost our ability to hand out water that quenches every thirst in every nation, in every tribe, in every tongue, that there is no problem on the earth that the water of Jesus does not satisfy. And, you know, Jesus, the, 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 she, the woman at the well says, are you greater than Jacob who dug this well and drank from it? And, you know, you can just see Jesus holding back, you know, like <laughs> I am before Jacob was even a thought in our imagination, you know, and, and, um, you know, Jacob, he, Jesus came to sit at Jacob's well. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he'll come and take a seat on every well in your life that is not working. <laughs> you know, you're like, I come here twice a day. I've tied my life to my need for this well. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And then he comes and he sits at that well and he just waits. How's this working out for you? Are you tired? Are you thirsty? You need another drink? You desperate again? You feel dry again. This, this need has blown up your whole life again. You're questioning who I am again. And there's no judgment. He just sits there happy. You know? Take as long as you need to figure it out. And she's like, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. And, and he's like, I don't live in the same world you live in. I don't need a bucket or a rope. <laughs> And, you know, Jacob, when we just think of the many 
things Jacob could uh, represent when we think of Jacob's well. Uh, you know, one of the most disturbing stories, thank you for your generosity in telling it, Jacob, is that his, his mother was actually discipling deceit in him. His name means deceit, but she actually comes to him with this idea. You know, I overheard your father saying, hey, I want to bless you, Esau, so go make me some soup so I can bless you. And I mean, poor Esau, his name means hairy, you know, and can you imagine your destiny on the earth begins and ends with you being hairy. Like, it's just, it's not going to work out well for you. He needed a savior. He needed a savior. And so Rebecca comes and whispers to Jacob, hey, so um, you should pretend to be Esau and get that blessing, get that blessing. And he's like, mom. He's hairy. I mean, he's going to know if he touches my skin. I have smooth skin. This is what the Bible says. I have smooth skin and he has hairy skin. And so she literally makes him a hairy costume. Like, like. <laughs> she dresses her son up in a hairy costume to pretend his way into the blessing of his father. And she makes the soup and, you know, <laughs> and he ends up pretending his way into getting an inheritance, a blessing from his father. And, you know, religion it's a well that will constantly push us to pretend to be worth blessing, to pretend to have the birthright to deserve a blessing, pretend to be significant enough to get your father to lay hands on you and give you a full portion, pretend to be the favorite, pretend to be the apple of his eye. And Jesus steps onto the scene and sits at that well. And the first thing he says when she says, give me a drink of this living water, he says, go call your husband. Because he draws a line and says, there will be no pretending here. If you want to drink from my well, you got to show up in the truth. You got to show up in the full story. You got to take off the costume. You got to stop pretending to be your older brother. You got to stop pretending to be worth a conversation with Jesus. You got to stop pretending to be holy. You got to stop pretending to be happy. You got to show up in the truth. I, I, that's right. I've had five husbands. I've been drinking from a well and I can't get full. And, you know, whatever your source is, is your God. What is supplying you sustenance? Wherever your source of love is, is your God. I've made my husband my God. Those were some rough times. <laughs> he is a terrible God. And he is an incredible husband. Okay? And all 47 of me adores him wholeheartedly. But when he starts to become my source of love, 
I'm tying myself to a well that is exhausting. And, you know, whatever your source of significance is, is your God. So if we feel more significant when we see blind eyes open, we're going to feel a pressure to tie ourselves to a source of significance that will always run dry. Jesus never did miracles to prove his identity. You know why he did miracles? To reveal the Father, to manifest the nature of an extraordinary God. He never showed up to prove anything. You know, crowds, larger crowds were starting to gather around him. The crowds didn't add one drop of significance to his soul. And we know that because he, he plenty of times rerouted himself away from crowds to stay true to his assignment. I'm here to do what the Father is doing. I'm here to say what the Father is saying. And we will never be able to stay true to our assignment. Our one assignment is, you know, Jesus said in his, in his last conversation with the disciples, you should be happy I'm leaving because the Father is the goal and the purpose of my life. And when we tie our significance to anything but the Father, it becomes an exhausting well. Gosh, I need another promotion at my job. I need another opportunity in ministry. Gosh, I need another friend of influence. I need, I need, I need. And we can end up with all of these beautiful things on the outside of our life and still living with a poverty thirst that cannot be quenched. And Jesus stepped onto the scene to invite her into her real story. And he drew a line and said, can you see your need for me? And she's like, yeah, you're right. I have had five husbands and I'm on my sixth and I'm still thirsty inside. And, you know, she's, she says, well, I could see that you're a prophet. And <laughs> so tell me this. Why do our fathers worship God here on this nearby mountain? But your people teach that Jerusalem is the place where we must worship, which is right. And Jesus responded, believe me, dear woman. The time has come when you won't worship the Father on a mountain, nor in Jerusalem, but in your heart. Your people don't really know the one they worship. We Jews worship out of our experience, for it's from the Jews that salvation is made available. From here on, worshiping the Father will not be a matter of the right place, but with the right heart. For God is a spirit and he longs to have sincere worshipers who worship and adore him in the realm of the spirit and truth. And, you know, this was an extraordinary proclamation Jesus was making. That no longer is worship an external act where you go to a temple and you walk through a process of worship. But that worship would actually happen inside of our heart. For the Father is actually aching for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And, you know, this invitation that true worship 
comes out of truth and your spirit, your spirit who is one with the Holy Spirit. That the best news of the gospel is that your spirit has been made one with the Holy Spirit. And true worship happens in that oneness with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, there are true things all around your life. And, you know, she revealed her true story. And Jesus invited her up to a high place of worship that only can come from your spirit, man. And, you know, it is, you know, have you ever heard that saying, like, well, this is my truth. So this is just what it is. This is my truth. And, you know, you have so much permission to live in your truth. But it's going to be a dumb life. You know? <laughs> because what a, what a tragedy if she would have just remained in her truth. This is my truth. I can't get it right. This is my truth. I'm dehydrated. You know, well, this is my truth. I never have enough. Oh, this is, this is just my truth. This is, this is the truth. This was my parents, their parents, their parents, their parents. And this is just my personality. I'm just grumpy. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just, this is just who I am. And, you know, you can't teach an old dog or a new dog old tricks, however it goes. You know? <laughs> the truth and the life into your story radically changes everything. And it doesn't mean your circumstances change overnight. It means you change your address in a moment. <laughs> in a moment, you stop living on planet earth and you start living in the Holy Spirit who's never known a dry life ever for all of eternity. And if we wait for our personality to affirm we've encountered the living God, then we're walking by facts and not by faith. And if we wait for our circumstance to say you're wealthy, you live in heaven. You live where there is not a sick person for all of eternity. You live in the realm of glory that all of creation has been waiting to live from. And, and when you wait for your bank account to affirm that you are the wealthiest person walking and breathing on planet Earth, not because of what you possess, but because of who possesses you, then you'll never get there. If we have to check with the people around us, do you think I'm significant? Do you think I'm worth loving? Do you think I have a purpose on the planet? There will never be enough affirmation. Bill Johnson himself could call you out of a crowd of 10,000 and say, arise and shine, your light has come. Stand up, you're awesome. And the next morning, you'll still wake up dehydrated if you, if you don't first arise and shine in the Godhead, because the first place we arise and shine 
is inside of the light that has come. And if we're waiting for queens to come and knock on our door and say, hey, let me see the way you set your table. <laughs> I've never, you know, I, it's not going to happen. You know? <laughs> no, they come to see the brightness of your rising because you stood up in your place of influence inside the Father, inside the Son, inside the Holy Spirit. You don't arise and shine because they came. They came because you decided to believe you're the beloved. You decided to believe you existed in the heart of God before you existed on planet Earth. You decided to believe I'm going to get my mail in heaven. No matter what comes, I'm going to receive the news from fullness. No matter what happens in my story, I'm going to receive it next to the God of the impossible. I'm going to live the air of another realm. I'm going to breathe heaven, and I'm going to walk from heaven every single day towards the earth. I'm not going to wait to rise and shine and take my place of influence for something on the earth to validate. Because you, you could literally be planted inside of every dream you've ever had and still live poor in your heart. Because one solution def completely defeated poverty, completely defeated our thirst. And it was the person of living water. So let's just go ahead and stand up. Wherever you are today, whatever circumstance you're walking out, whatever deficit you're bumping into, you are full. You are wealthy. You are wanted. You are the beloved of heaven. You know, that when you look around at problems and deficits in your city, in your sphere of influence, arise and shine, not in that sphere, but in the Godhead. Arise and shine inside the Father. Because when we are living and breathing inside the person of heaven, everything on the earth looks different. And it's not pretending. It's not pretending everything is okay. It's not pretending it's full. You know, when, when Joshua and Caleb stepped inside the promised land, they didn't pretend there wasn't giants there. They didn't come back and say, no, they're all lying. The giants were actually grasshoppers and all there were were grapes and milk and honey and goodness. No, they said there are giants, but we can take them. There, there are deficits, but we have enough water. There is lack, but we live under a fountain that never runs dry. And the people of God are the most hope-filled people on the, on the planet because we're living from the God of all hope. He never, for all of eternity, will have a hopeless thought. He is the source of our hope. 
So when we see giants, we're the people that get excited because we know I'm not a grasshopper. I'm a daughter of the living God. I'm the beloved of heaven. I live from a realm that has enough resource for every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every problem. And everybody says, amen. Love you. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.